We're now going to do part seven of our series in seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. Last week I spoke about the covenants and a lot of questions came up about how we relate to the law in the new covenant and some other questions. And so I thought it would be good to spend a week just looking at these questions about law and covenant. And so my goal is to clearly understand how we should relate to the law in the new covenant. But just a very quick recap of where we've been. We started asking why study the Old Testament and you need the roots to get the fruits. Then we looked to creation, a sense of wonder and awe at God's power and beauty. We looked at the big story going from uh, the fall and the Genesis right the way through to Jesus and how the whole thing fits together. Uh, we looked at shadows and types, the way that images and, and pictures in the old relate to realities in the new and what the rules are for that, what the, what the patterns are for that, how Jesus related to that. Then we looked at the flood, um, and we saw this, the, an amazing way in which Jesus was, um, a picture of us taking, taking us safely through the storm in the ark. He's a picture of the ark. And then last week, we looked at the covenants, the backbone of the Old Testament and the framework that makes sense of how the different parts relate to each other, especially the Old and the New Testaments. And my definition of covenants was a forever relationship with serious commitments. And usually there's powerful symbolism. So it's a forever relationship. It it goes on. It's intended to go on forever. Uh, it's a relationship um, between two parties and, of course, mostly God and, and, and humanity here and serious commitments behind it. So that was the what we did last week. And uh, I would just like to take a moment to review these the, the charts that I ended up with last week. And I've slightly refined it from this week to this week, and we see uh, four covenants that relate the old uh, people of God um, and the new people of God. And so the first three, then we have Noah, Abraham, and Israel, and then we have the new covenant. And um, we've left out David because that was a much, much more specific one. So if we look at how these compare, reading across the Noah, he had the initial sign of the ark and salvation in that. Abraham saw a vision of a smoking torch. Um, Israel crossed the Red Sea, the fire on Mount Sinai. And then we read in the New Testament that that crossing the Red Sea was like an initiation in the way that baptism is for us initiation. And then we have an ongoing sign, so a rainbow for Noah, circumcision given to Abraham. Israel were given an, the Sabbath as something they had to do, and then an outward presence of visible glory in, in the temple or the pillars of, of, of cloud and fire, something outward. And we get something, a similar pair. We get um, uh, an inward sign, which is rest in Jesus, which is the equivalent of the Sabbath. And then we have an outward, we have a, a, a glory, which is the spirit who's in us, which God gives to us. And so then we have um, 
God's uh, then we have the uh, God's commitments in each of these. So in Noah, the commitment was no more flood. Uh, to Abraham, a descendants and a land. To Israel in the old covenant, there were physical blessings and prosperity. And then the new covenant, better promises. And we looked last week at those amazing promises that we have. Uh, I am yours and you are mine. Requirements. Noah had some laws. Abraham just trusted God. Israel had the the whole law, you know, books of it. Uh, and in the new covenant, it's trust in Jesus. Very similar to Abraham. And then we have a memorial feast, and I've added this from last week because it's interesting. We don't get it um, in Noah and Abraham, but Israel had the Passover as a memorial feast when they crossed the Red Sea. And we have the Lord's Supper as a memorial feast to remember what Jesus has done for us. So that's a, a, a quick overview of the three previous covenants and the new covenant which we are under. So I'm now going to just talk about what we're going to do today. And I have four points today. I title the law and the new covenant. How do they relate? And then if the law was for the Jews, what about everyone else? Now, these are all questions that have come up in discussions with people in the last week. And they're great questions. If the law was for the Jews, what about everyone else? Does the Old Testament law have any value for Christians today? Now we have the gospel. Is law necessary in this world? What purpose does law have? And in the new covenant, how should we relate to the law yet avoid legalism? Like, does the law have any value? What, how should we relate to it? So those are the four questions we're going to look at. So first of all, if the law was for the Jews, what about everyone else? Of course, this is an, an immensely important question because if Jews were judged under the covenant with Moses, how do the rest of the world relate to God? And uh, so what about Gentiles? Were they under the law? What about non-Christians today? What law are they judged by? Are non-Christians, uh, are non-Christians today um, under a covenant. Uh, you know, is there any covenant for them? So uh, these are the questions. And so the, the most important place to look for this is Romans chapter 2. So in Romans 2, Paul is specifically answering this question. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things required by the law, they are a law for themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So he's not saying it's like believers who have the law on their hearts, like within their hearts and make them want to naturally follow God. But he says there is a law inside them. There's some kind of an awareness of the law. And of course, we know that's true. We know that there is an, an innate knowledge that is wrong to kill. Some people may, may be psychopaths and they may kill, but there's, you know, in right across the world, there's an amazing commonality. When Paul uses the law here, we have to realize that there are different ways the word law is used. 
So the law can mean the whole law of Moses, which is the ceremonies, the the clean and unclean laws, as well as the Ten Commandments. But in this place here, when Paul is speaking about the Gentiles, he's talking about the kind of laws that are in our conscience. It's not exactly the same as conscience, but it's very, very similar to conscience. It's the kind of laws, so it's basic laws about right and wrong, many of them reflected in the Ten Commandments, particularly the second half of the Ten Commandments. But they are... um, they're not exactly the same as the huge amount of, of ceremonial law and everything that's in the Old Testament law. Um, on that day, when, as my gospel declares, God will judge the secrets of human hearts by Christ Jesus. So these these uh, laws will be on the, the basis on which they're judged. You can't be judged on the basis of something that you know you, you don't know. But they're given these laws. Now, what's interesting is that um, you may have heard of Noam Chomsky. You probably haven't. But Noam Chomsky is called the father of modern linguistics. Um, in, the, in the middle of the 1900s, he revolutionized the understanding of linguistics by proving pretty well. I mean, most people agree with him that the ability to have language is actually hardwired into us. There's something we're actually born with a brain designed to acquire language. And there's a huge commonality between human languages because we have the the same kind of neural systems there for acquiring languages. Um, And uh, he um, he's he's done some tremendous work in that area and helping to understand how different languages relate to one another. But what's happened is he more recently he's now he's an atheist. He's not no Christian interest whatsoever. He's you know quite strongly an atheist. But he said actually it's not just language that we're born with, but morality is actually inherited. It's in there in our DNA. And here's here's some quotes. This is um, from an, uh, an article called on humanism and morality, uh, which is uh, an interview with uh, someone called Tor Wannenberg. And you can go to Chomsky got info and see that just as our language capabilities are genetically determined, so is our capacity as human beings for moral judgment. Now, I'm not quoting this because I think it's about equal value to the Bible. I'm just saying it's so self-evident that even atheists will agree. Let me read the next paragraph. But the fact of the matter is that we're constantly making moral judgments in new situations, and over a substantial range, we do it in a convergent fashion. That means all people do the same kind of thing. We don't differ randomly and wildly from one to another. Furthermore, young children do it very quickly and they also converge. And those of you who've had children will know that children have got a very strong sense of right and wrong when they think they've been wronged. And they've got, you know, they know that this is unjust. And the idea of, of justice and right and wrong and all of these things um, are wired in to us. And so I'm quoting that to to give you an example. This isn't something that's that's um, indisputable. This is indisputable that there is this this nature that's within us. At least I believe it's indisputable. So this is the basis for what Paul says that that those who've not heard God's law are judged by. They're judged by something God has given them as a gift. 
which they may pervert. I mean, there are some cultures where um, there are things that happen in that culture which are not good, and the culture is kind of distorted, this this view to a certain extent. Um, and so there's necessary to have God's word to correct some distortions. But in the main, as Chomsky said, there's a convergence of these things, certainly on the, the, the main points. Uh, so uh, that's really what I wanted to say to start with. That's the, the first point here. Um, if the law was for the Jews, what about everyone else? And the answer is God has given built into every human an understanding to some extent of right and wrong the basics, the most important thing, you know, thou shall not kill, uh, justice, that kind of thing. And um, that is the basis on of judgment. Now, it does, some people ask, you know, is there a covenant behind that? And some people suggest some sort of creation covenant of works. I don't think formally there's a covenant, but effectively there is, uh, God is treating humanity uh according to a framework, a legal framework. But I wouldn't call it a covenant, but it, it does have some similarities. So that was the first question. Uh, the second one, um, does the Old Testament law have any value for Christians? Does the Old Testament law have any value for Christians? And uh, then we're going to look at uh, the gospel and Legalism. So let's look at number two. Uh, how do we relate to the Old Testament law today? And does it have any value for Christians? And if so, what? So there's something you may have heard of, which has been suggested. And the idea is there's a threefold division of the law of Moses. And you can divide it to a certain extent, into ceremonial laws. So ceremonial laws are offerings, temple worship, you know, no pork, eating laws, food laws, clothing laws, all of the kind of outward regulations that affected their worship. And they were usually, they were pointing towards Jesus. There were pictures of Jesus. So the, the whole priesthood, for example, picturing Jesus being the priest that comes before God. So that would be the ceremonial. And then there's a whole load of laws that are civil laws. You know, they're cultural, they're detailed, there's penalties. There's, you know, what you do if your neighbor's ox attack you and, and injure you. You know, what, what penalty does your neighbor have to pay? All that kind of civil law to do with society and often it's kind of just mitigating the the the, the worst things that could happen and um, so that's civil law and the last one is moral law so the 10 commandments would be under that category of moral law and other personal standards there are other moral commands that are there and so the idea among many christians is that the first two are over ceremonial and civil and moral ones are still valid today. This is an idea that's been around a long time. Uh, the problem with that, the problem with saying, well, we're still under the moral law. We're still under the Ten Commandments. We're not under the others. There's some problems with that. Actually, when you look at the commands, they don't fall into quite such neat categories. And let me give you an example. I want you to categorize this. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you are foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Well, it's not ceremonial, 
Um, it's, well, you could say it's civil because it's to do with how society gets regulated, but it's also moral. So it's both civil and moral because, you know, obviously this is God's heart for how we behave. So it doesn't fit in in neat categories. But more importantly, Jesus is very clear that he is the new lawgiver and we are under him. So I want to, let's just go back to this one. I want to say that uh, those categories are interesting and, and useful, I think, but we are not under the moral law of Moses. We are under Jesus. Uh, so uh, if we to look then um, at John chapter 1, we read, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Don't you think? That's very, very clear. Um, well, what does this mean? Well, you can read Jesus. This is, this is an extract from Jesus' teaching, Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. So who's he talking about? He's talking about Moses giving this as one of the Ten Commandments. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, in other words, I am overriding this, that everyone who's angry with his brother without a cause will be liable to judgment. So Jesus is is overriding that. Let's look at another one. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, it doesn't actually put it quite as compactly as that, but that's the gist of some of the uh, some of the Old Testament laws. What does Jesus say? He says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I don't want you to be in any doubt here. Jesus is the one that we are under, not Moses. Jesus is the new lawgiver. Uh, some, uh, so Jesus effectively, if you look at all his teaching, effectively um, re- re- taught all of the Ten Commandments. He replaced all of the Ten Commandments, except people will say, what about the Sabbath? What about the Sabbath command? Um, so let's look at the Sabbath command. Did Jesus teach that? Did he forget about that one? Exodus twenty three twelve. it says, Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. So what did Jesus say about that? Well, Jesus actually said something very interesting. In Matthew 11, he used exactly the same word, anapao, which is the word for rest, and in the Greek Old Testament. And Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So what he's saying is the Sabbath command to rest one day a week from your labor was a picture, a type of what it means to come to Jesus and rest seven days a week in the fact that he is He's actually accomplished everything that we would have been able to accomplish by our labor. So this is the Sabbath command according to Jesus. So um, one of the, the questions that comes up, and it's a very good question, Jesus said, um, he said, uh, think that I've not come to, to destroy the law, but I've come to fulfill the law. A jot or tittle of the law shall not pass away. 
What did he mean by that if he's replacing it? Well, what I would say is this, that Jesus in himself, he took on the role of Israel, the nation of Israel that had failed so completely to obey the rule, the law. And he himself perfectly obeyed the law of Moses in every way until at the end he'd actually accomplished it. There was nothing more to be done. He'd actually done it. He'd done it on behalf of all his people. He'd done it completely. And Paul says that the the writing against him, the law, was nailed to the cross. It was nailed to the cross that that was it. And so I would say that when Jesus says the law shall not pass away, what he means actually is that it's not because it actually reaches its climax and its complete fulfillment. It's not thrown away in the garbage, but it's reached its fulfillment in him. And that's how he can replace it. So um, when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just fulfill the um, those uh, kind of... Um, Sorry, when Jesus lived this life, he didn't just fulfill the laws uh, of Moses in terms of ceremonies and so on, but he also fulfilled the command to Israel, which was the biggest command, that they would be a light to the nations. And actually, there's one of Matthew quotes a prophecy to Israel that they would be a light to the nations and applies it to Jesus. So he took on the role of Israel, who was supposed to be showing the whole world what the character of God was like. And he took that job on. And so he's fulfilled that and been the light to the nations. So um, Jesus has done that. He's taken the taken on all of what Israel required to do and done it himself. And so how does this work then with um, this law that's written on our heart, the written on hearts of unbelievers, the, the, the law that um, the Gentiles had. Did Jesus replace those as well? Well, yes, I would say that what's happened is, um, sorry, I should have read this last verse. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So, um, what I would say is this, that uh, the law of Moses is being fulfilled in Jesus Christ, but also the built-in laws that people have it, it, because they're humans are also um, taken up and perfectly explained by Jesus. Because often we misunderstand these laws inside. We mishear them. We don't, um, they're not, um, they're not, they're not as clear as they could be um, because of the distortions of sin. And Jesus actually has replaced both of those. And so Jesus is the ultimate definition of what God requires in terms of the law. So uh, that, um, that I, I believe is my, that's my answer to the second question. Let's just look at our questions again. Um, the first was, if the law was for the Jews, what about everyone else? And God put wired the law into us. The second was, does the Old Testament law have any value for Christians? And I would say that uh, the Old Testament law uh, has, um, I'm going to explain a little bit more about this, but the Old Testament law has been taken up by Jesus Christ and he is our lawgiver. So my third point then is now that we have the gospel 
is law necessary in this world? Now that we have the gospel, is law necessary in this world? So um, let's look at um, this um, a verse in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3.19 says that the law temporarily restrained sin. Why then was the law given? So this is back in the time of Moses. And Paul has been saying, you know, the law ultimately can't save you. And it was all about Jesus. So why then was the law given? It was added he says, because of transgressions until the arrival of the descendant to whom the promise had been made. Uh, So what he's saying was that, that it was added because there was going to be a gap before Jesus came. And during that gap, things could go wildly out of control if there wasn't any kind of law. And so the law was given just to kind of restrain wickedness and keep it down so that there would be something there at least for when jesus came he goes on in verse 24 so then the law was our guardian until christ came in order that we might be justified by faith now that word translated guardian is a very visual um thing from from the, the greek times in in paul's time when you had uh they had school for for um wealthy children and the children would go to school the children had a particular was a particular servant whose role it was to take the child to school and to make sure they were safe going to school and this this guardian who took the child to school kind of kept them safe during that journey and and Paul is saying that this is using that word to talk about the law because the law kind of kept kept Israel from going crazy until Jesus would come. And then we could be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Greek There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. So that's a very powerful statement about what has happened now, how the law has been replaced because we have Christ Jesus and it's not necessary for for that purpose. But it's still needed in this world to restrain sin. If in this world, if you never have, if we didn't have any law and you just said, oh, Jesus has come, we don't need law. It's not going to work because it only it's only people who believe in Jesus and have a new heart who actually have the law replaced. So if somebody doesn't have a new heart, then the law does have a value because it restrains, it gives them, it warns them, it gives them some kind of something to keep them from going off into into utter sin. So um, I want to talk then about the, the usefulness of the law once Christ came. So what use then is it? So uh, first of all, it shows people that they need Christ. 
When we feel the guilt of our sin, we can experience the joy of having it wiped out by Jesus. So one of the purposes of having a law nowadays, having very clear description of what God wants, is that it, it enables us to understand salvation, it enables to us to understand our need for salvation and what salvation is. Uh, the second purpose is what I've just alluded to up to now when I was reading Galatians. It restrains evil in the world by government and by conscience, by government enforcing law and by conscience inside of us um, restraining uh, behavior. And there's a third usefulness. The law of Jesus helps us discern when we are walking according to the Spirit. And uh, I want you to notice I'm very careful how I phrased that last thing. Because there is a statement, an expression in Christianity that's been around hundreds of years called the third use of the law. And by the third use of the law, they really mean being legalistic in church, you know, preaching the law, that's what is meant. And uh, I think that um, the law does have a third use, but it's not that. The third use of the law is we can see what the law is and we can say, hmm, there's something in me that doesn't want to, that wants to rebel against that. That can't be the spirit because the spirit will always be in tune with the law. And I'll come back to that in just a minute. But um, uh, that's what the usefulness is of the law once Christ has come. Um, so just uh, to summarize the law of Moses, uh, I want to ask a question. Is the Old Testament law any use to us now that we have the law of Jesus? And I want to answer that by saying yes, but treat it as wisdom, not law so this is this is a, a question that i got asked and it's a very good question is there any use reading leviticus or deuteronomy or you know uh, numbers or places where exodus where there are laws in there is there any value to that as a christian um if we're not under it what use has it got so i would say that it's wisdom because when you read it, you can say, yeah, God was wise putting that law into place because that was very valuable. Some of the law, of course, is a picture of Jesus. It points to Jesus. So, for example, the law is about the high priest and the sacrifices and so on. But a lot of the civil and moral laws, uh, they're useful to read because they contain wisdom about how, given those social, the social situation, how that could evil could be restrained in that situation. And that's why a lot of the laws are not perfect by any means, but they restrain the level of, of evil that was, that would have grown up had it not been for the laws. Um, another question that came up was, can we pray for prosperity in the new covenant? If I said last week that prosperity was one of the blessings of the, the old covenant, um, but also we have the law and, you know, you can't have one without the other. So the question was, well, is there any place for prosperity in the new covenant? And uh, I found, a, a, I think this is a good answer. Um, 
So Paul, when he writes to the Philippians, he has received a gift from them and probably a financial gift and probably quite generous by the sound of it. And this is what he writes. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. So do you notice that? He's not saying, you know, the only good Christian is a poor Christian. He says, yeah, I know how to have prosperity in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So I think it's a great answer. I think that God sometimes does give us abundance. He sometimes prospers, prospers us. And we should know how to enjoy that without allowing our hearts to be taken away and our treasure being on earth. But yeah, it's there's nothing wrong with having abundance and plenty. And Paul says this here very clearly in these verses. So our outward prosperity is good, but our happiness does not depend on it. Okay, so that's three of our four points. We've looked at if the law is for the Jews, what about everyone else? And we looked at how God has given us a law wired in. We looked at the the Old Testament doesn't have any value for Christians. And uh, and we looked at um, how Jesus Christ has actually um, uh, given us, he is our new lawgiver, uh, then we've said, now we have the gospel, is law necessary uh, in this world? And we lo- we saw how um, actually law does restrain evil, and it's important to have law. It's, it's, uh, it does have some values, and I gave you three possible uses of the law nowadays. And the last one I want to say, in the New Covenant, how should we relate to the law, yet avoid legalism? In the New Covenant, how should we relate to the law, yet avoid legalism? And I just want to say a few things uh, in closing. Uh, If we're not under the law for our salvation, but under grace, what's the point for us as Christians in having the law? I mentioned that a little bit earlier about helping us to know whether it's the Spirit speaking in us. Uh, But the New Covenant says, I will remember their sins no more. Um, Moses brought the Ten Commandments. How many commands did Jesus give? Well, someone's catalogued them and said, there's 1,050 laws that Jesus has given. I don't know where they got that from, but certainly Jesus had more laws. And did he have a higher standard than Moses? Well, yes, he did. So do we end up replacing the Old Testament law with with more and harder laws? Um, some teach then that Jesus just gave us more commands to add on to Moses. And of course, I've said that's not, he didn't add on to Moses, but he's given us new. Um, but what I want to say, and this is my key here, is that Jesus didn't actually replace the the laws with a, with new laws, he replaced them with a person, with he himself. 
And this is the key that I want you to get as we're coming to a close. Jesus says, follow me, do what I do, think how I think, love others as I love others. Moses never said, follow me. He goes far beyond a written list of rules. Can we do it? Well, not in our own strength, but with Jesus living in us through the Spirit, we can. Moses never said, I will come in and live in you and give you the power to to keep my laws. No, but with Jesus, we're united with him. He's defeated the power of sin and living within us. Um, I, uh, there's a, a story I heard of a girl that I know who was saved and, um, her family started out quite hostile when she, they knew that she became a Christian and they were hostile towards this, this person, this Christianity, this religion that she's got stopped, but they stopped being antagonistic within days of her becoming a Christian because they saw the change in her life. And eventually the the family was saved as well. Um, it wasn't that she now had more laws to keep. That wasn't it at all. It was that someone was living in her heart who was able to keep the laws. And so I want to say that the essence of Jesus' laws is follow me. And all the things he said were just examples of what that looks like. So this is going to be my last slide. And... Uh, I want to ask what it means in practice to to actually put this, to actually work this out in our lives. So here we have our last slide. Um, and at the top, we've got the old way of the old way of doing it. And the bottom, we've got the new way of doing it. The old heart way of doing it and the new heart way of doing it. So the old way, if there's something we think of doing, we say, should I do this? The old way is, well, you check the law. If there's no law against it, you can do it. If there is a law against it, you're resentful. And I'm not allowed to do it. So that's the old way. Check the law. And, uh, unfortunately, I can't. I want to, but I can't. The new heart way of thinking. Should I do this? And so... Uh, and, and notice this comes with Jesus living in our hearts. So should I do this? So the question is, what would please Jesus? Yes, do it and have the joy of pleasing him. Or no, don't do it and have the joy of making a sacrifice for him because we love him. And so this is the new way of doing it. This is the new way of relating to the law. And so I want to, this is the key thing I want to leave you with. And this is my last statement here. What the key thing that has changed is not so much the laws, but our relationship to the law. Under the new covenant, our relationship to the law has changed. We don't do it because that is the way we're going to avoid punishment. We do it because we love Jesus and we 
we don't need to do it in order to be saved because he has accomplished that for us. Our motivation, our relationship to the law has completely changed. It's not a means of getting out of punishment. It's a way of pleasing the one we love. Not a way of avoiding punishment. Keeping, following Jesus is a way of pleasing the one we love. Let's pray, shall we? Thank you, Father, for this amazing new covenant we have in Jesus. Thank you that he's paid the price for all of our sins. He's paid the penalty for the law. And thank you that he's revealed to us this perfect way of pleasing you and also given us his spirit to live in us so that we can do it. Thank you, God. And Lord, we pray that you will enable us to live not in legalism, but in the joy of following Jesus. Help us, Lord, to live like this and to experience more of his life in us. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.